Section five of Swanhilda and Other Fairy Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Zarina Silverman, Los Angeles, California. Swanhilda and Other Fairy Tales by Wilhelm Hauff, translated by Carolyn Norris Horowitz. Section five The Haunted Ship. My father owned a little store in Balsora. He was neither poor nor rich, but was one of those kind of people who do not like to venture very far for fear of losing the little already obtained. He educated me plainly and strictly. So thorough was he in my instruction that I was enabled at an early age to help him in his business. Just as I had reached my eighteenth year, and he had made his first large speculation, he died probably of regret for having trusted goods worth a thousand gold pieces on the sea. I had, soon after, to consider him happier in death, for in a few weeks the news reached us that the ship to which my father had entrusted his goods had been lost. My youthful spirits, however, were not depressed by this misfortune. Without loss of time, I turned into money everything that my father had left. Then I went out into the world to seek my fortune. I was accompanied by Ibrahim, one of my father's old servants, who refused to be separated from me and my destiny. We set sail from the harbor of Balsora with a favorable wind. The ship on which I had taken passage was bound for India. When we had traveled about fifteen days on the usual route, the captain predicted a storm. His manner was very serious for his knowledge of the channel was not sufficient to enable him to meet a storm with safety. He at once ordered the sails to be furled, and for a long time we were carried along by the force of the current. The night came on clear and cold, and the captain began to think that he had been mistaken in his calculation. But all at once a ship, which we had not seen before, passed close by us. Wild shouts of exultation arose from her deck. I was somewhat surprised to hear such sounds of revelry, and especially in those anxious hours before the storm. The captain, who was standing beside me, turned deathly pale. "'We are lost!' he cried. "'Yonder sails the death-ship!' Before I had time to ask him what he meant by this extraordinary remark, the sailors came running towards us, wild with affright. "'Have you seen it, the death-ship?' they asked. "'It has just passed by us!' Words of comfort were read from the Koran, and the captain himself took the helm. But, alas, it was all in vain. The storm began to rage in all its fury. Within an hour the ship had sprang a leak. We were fast sinking. The lifeboats were quickly let down, and scarcely had the last sailor left the ship when she sank entirely out of sight. I was a beggar, in a little boat, out on the great wide sea but the worst was yet to come. The storm continued to rage, and the little boat became unmanageable. I clung to my old servant, and we promised never to leave each other, come what would. At last daylight appeared, but, with the first gleam of dawn, a sudden gust of wind struck our boat and capsized it. I have never seen any of the ship's crew since that night. For the moment I was stunned, the unexpected blow completely overpowered me. 
When, however, I recovered from the shock, I found myself in the arms of my faithful old servant. Having freed himself from the overturned boat, he had managed to support me as well as himself above the waves. By the time the storm had abated, nothing was to be seen of our ship, but we clearly discerned, not far off, another, which the waves were driving towards us. As she came nearer, I had no difficulty in recognizing the craft. It was the same ship that passed so close to us the night before the one that threw the captain into such a terror. At the sight of this vessel, I felt a mighty fear creep over me. The captain's exclamation of dread and horror, which had been so fearfully fulfilled, and the deserted appearance of the ship terrified me. Yet we had no other hope of rescue. So we called out loudly for help. But although we came near to the ship and repeated our cries, no one appeared on deck, no one answered our call. From the prow of the ship, and a little to one side, a long rope was let down into the water. We swam toward the rope with all our strength, and at last succeeded in grasping it. I called out loudly, but all was silence on board the ship. By means of this rope we climbed aboard. Being the younger and more active, I reached the deck first. Oh, horror! What a sight met my gaze! The floor of the deck was red with blood, and about it lay twenty or thirty dead bodies in Turkish attire. At the mast stood a man richly dressed. His saber was in his hand, his face was pale and distorted. A large nail, driven through his forehead, fastened the dead man to the mast. Fear chained my feet to the ground. I scarcely dared to breathe. When Ibrahim reached the deck, he was equally horrified. Finally, we ventured to go further in the ship, having, in the agony of our minds, implored the great prophet's protection. At every step we looked about us to assure ourselves that no living person had escaped our notice. Save myself and servant, there was no living human being within reach. We were alone on the great sea. We reached the cabin steps. Here we stopped involuntarily and looked at each other, neither dared to utter his thoughts. Oh, master, my faithful servant found voice to say, after a long silence, something terrible has happened here. Yet even if the ship's hold is full of murderers, I would rather trust myself to their favor or displeasure than to pass another moment among these dead men. And I fully agreed with him. So we took heart and descended the steps, though in fear and trembling as to what fate awaited us there. Everywhere was death-like silence. When we reached the first cabin door, I put my ear to the keyhole and listened. No sound was to be heard. I opened the door and looked in. The room presented a very disorderly appearance. Coats, weapons, and a variety of tools were scattered about in wild confusion. Nothing was in its place. The crew, or at least the captain, must, only a little while before, have been drinking, for wine was spilt over everything. We went from room to room and from cabin to cabin. Everywhere we found great quantities of silks, pearls, and sugar, and all of the most costly kind. At first I was in an ecstasy of delight, for I thought if there was no living man on the ship, except myself and servant, all these valuables would belong to me. But Ibrahim said, 
that in all probability we were many miles from land, and even if we were not, we could not manage the ship without help. After refreshing ourselves with the food and wines, which we found in abundance in the cabins, we again ascended to the upper deck. But at the sight of so many dead men we shuddered. We therefore determined to rid ourselves of them by throwing them overboard. But our courage failed us indeed when we found that none of them could be moved from his resting place. They lay on the floor as if spellbound. To remove them we would have been obliged to take up the planks of the deck, and we had not the proper tools for such a work. We could neither loosen the captain from the mast, nor disengage the sword from his stiff hand. We spent the day in sad reflections upon our situation. When night came, I allowed old Ibrahim to lie down and sleep while I kept watch on deck, for I hoped, during the night hours, to spy out a friendly sail. When, however, the moon came out, and I calculated by the stars that it was nearly the first hour, an irresistible sleep overpowered me. Involuntarily, I fell backwards and dropped behind a cask that stood on the deck. But, after all, it was more of a stunned feeling than sleep. I could hear distinctly the waves beating against the side of the ship, the wind rattling and whistling in the sails. All at once I thought I detected the sound of voices. Then the tread of men's steps was to be heard. I tried to raise myself, that I might better tell from whence the noise proceeded, but an invisible power held me firmly down. I could not even open my eyes. The voices grew more and more distinct. They sounded as if a jolly crew were running about the deck. Among them, I thought I heard the powerful voice of a commander. There came also sounds as of the hoisting and lowering of sails. By degrees, however, I lost consciousness and fell into a deep sleep. During this stupor, I was sure that I heard a great clashing of weapons. When I awoke, the sun was high in the heavens and shining full in my face. At first I was amazed. Then the recollection of the storm, the ship, the dead men, and what I had heard during the night rushed before my mind with vivid remembrance. Upon looking around, I saw that everything remained the same as it had been the day before. The dead men lay there, undisturbed. The captain still stood fastened to the mast. I laughed at my dream, and started off in search of my old servant. I found him in the first cabin, looking very much dejected. "'Oh, master!' he cried out at sight of me. "'I would rather be lying at the bottom of the sea than to pass another night in this bewitched ship.' Upon inquiring the cause of his fright, he said, When I had slept a few hours, I awoke, and heard a sound as of men running to and fro over my head. At first I thought it must be you, but there were at least twenty running about. Moreover, I heard cries and whoops. At last heavy steps came down the stairs. After that I knew little more, for only now and then, for a few seconds at a time, did I have the use of my senses." But in those seconds I saw the same man who was nailed to the mast sitting at that table, singing and drinking. The man in a scarlet cloak, who lay on the floor near the mast, sat next to him and drank with him. You can well imagine, my friends, the horror and alarm I felt after listening to old Ibrahim's adventures of the night. My imaginations then were no delusion. I had heard the steps and voices of the dead men. 
the thought of traveling in such company was not a pleasant one. Upon finishing, old Ibrahim was lost in thought. I have it now, he cried at length, and began repeating a verse that he had learned from his grandfather. This old man had been both wise and experienced. He had likewise been a great traveler. This verse, Ibrahim said, would, if repeated, ward off any ghost or protect us from the wiles of the enchanter. He also asserted that the unnatural sleep which had overpowered us during the night could be averted if we prayed zealously from the Koran. This suggestion of my companion consoled me, for it was in anxious expectation that we saw the night approaching. Opening into the cabin was a small closet, and there we determined to conceal ourselves. We bored holes in the door sufficiently large to obtain a view of the entire cabin. Then we fastened the door as securely as we could on the inside, after which Ibrahim wrote the name of the prophet in each of the four corners. Thus, in terror, we awaited the coming of the night. About eleven o'clock, a feeling of irresistible drowsiness crept over me. By the advice of Ibrahim, I prayed earnestly from the Koran, and as if in answer to my prayer, the inclination to sleep seemed to leave me. All at once, everything seemed to be alive and active overhead. The ropes creaked, steps went to and fro on the deck, and voices could be distinctly heard. We listened for some time in an agony of suspense. Finally, we heard steps coming down the cabin stairs. Ibrahim began at once to repeat the verse his grandfather had taught him as a charm against ghosts and magicians. Come ye from the highest air, or from depths of grim despair, come ye out from death's last sleep, or did ye all from fire leap? Allah is your Lord and King, to him ye must obedience bring. I am free to confess that I had very little faith in the power of this verse, and when the cabin door flew open, my hair actually stood on end. In walked the large, powerful-looking man whom I had seen nailed to the mast. The nail was still driven through the middle of his forehead, but he had his saber by his side. Behind the captain came another man. He was clothed in costly apparel. I recognized in him one of the dead men I had seen lying on the deck. The captain, for such undoubtedly must have been his rank, had a pale face, a long black beard, and wild, restless eyes, which seemed to survey the cabin critically. I could see his face quite distinctly as he looked toward the door of the closet in which we were hidden. Apparently he did not suspect that there was anything wrong about the closet door. Both men sat down at the table which stood in the middle of the cabin. Each spoke in an unknown language, and in a loud tone of voice. As their conversation continued, their voices became still louder and more eager, until at last the captain brought his clinched fist down on the table with a blow that shook the whole cabin. With wild laughter, his companion sprang up and beckoned the captain to follow him. The latter arose, drew his saber from his side, and the two left the cabin together. We breathed more freely when they had gone. But our fear was not at an end, however. Louder and louder grew the noise on deck. We could hear men running to and fro, screaming, laughing, and whooping. At length there came an alarm so terrific 
that we thought the deck with all the sails was coming down upon us. It was followed by clashing of weapons and screams, then followed a sudden and deep stillness. After remaining for some hours in the closet, we ascended to the deck. Everything was just as we had left it. Not a man had changed his position. And thus we passed many days on the ship. Her course was always due east, in which direction, by my calculation, the land was not far off. But although the ship went forward for many miles during the day, she seemed at night to go backward the same distance, for we always found ourselves in the same place when the sun arose. This we could not explain, unless the dead men each night sailed the ship back in a full wind. To prevent this happening again, we took in all sail before the night came on, and employed the same means for securing them as we had used on the closet door. We wrote the name of the prophet, and also old Ibrahim's verse on parchment and bound it around the lowered sails. Then we waited anxiously in our little closet for the result. That night the phantom crew seemed to rage more furiously than ever, but in the morning we found the sails just as we had left them. From that time, during each day, we hoisted as much sail as was necessary to run the ship smoothly, and each night we rebound the sails with the parchment. At the end of five days we had traveled a considerable distance forward. On the morning of the sixth day we descried in the distance a small stretch of land, and we hastened to thank Allah and his prophet for our wonderful rescue. This day, and the night following, we steered the ship towards the coast. On the seventh morning we were rewarded by a sight of a city on the distant land. Immediately we cast anchor, and to our great joy found that it touched bottom. At once we lowered a small boat, which stood on the deck, and rowed with all our strength towards the city. A half hour's steady pull brought us into a river, which emptied into the ocean, and from this point we steered straight for the shore. Arriving at the city gate, we learned, upon making inquiries, that we were in India, not far from the place to which was bound the ship in which I had taken passage at Baghdad. We went at once to a caravansary, for we had need of refreshment after our adventurous journey. There I inquired where I could find a wise and learned man. I also gave the host to understand that I would like to see one who is somewhat versed in the art of magic. He directed me to a plain-looking, unpretentious house in a retired street, and told me to ask for Muli. As I entered the house, I was met by a little old man with a white beard and a long nose. He asked me what I wished. I told him that I wanted to see the wise Muli. He informed me that he was the one I sought. Straight away I told him my story, and asked him to advise me as to what I should do with the dead men, and what means I should employ to get them off the ship. The old man went on to say, that the people on board the ship, owing to some crime or outrage which they had committed on the sea, had probably been bewitched. Were they brought to land, he believed the enchantment would be broken. This, however, could not be done unless the planks on which they lay were taken up. By all justice and right, thought I, the ship and all the goods on it belong to me. I have, as it were, found it. Therefore, I shall keep the story quite secret. I will give Muli a little present, out of my abundance, and he, with his slaves, will help me to dispose of the dead men. Accordingly, I promised Muli to reward him handsomely if he would assist me. 
This he agreed to do, and we at once set out upon our way towards the coast. Five slaves accompanied us. They carried saws, axes, and whatever else might be required in the work we were to undertake. The wise Mule could not say enough in praise of our fortunate thought. The binding of the sails with the verse and the prophet's name was, he said, the only means by which we could have been saved. It was quite early in the day when we reached the side of the ship. We all set to work with a will, and in an hour's time four of the dead men lay in our little boat. One of the slaves rowed back to land for the purpose of interring the bodies. But upon returning, he told us that the dead men had spared him the trouble, for as soon as he had laid them on the ground, they crumbled to dust. We went steadily on, sawing the planks and sending the bodies to land. Before night, all had been taken up. There was no one left on board except the man who was nailed to the mast. We tried to draw the nail out of the wood, but all in vain. No force could move it a hair's breadth. What to do I did not know. We could not cut down the whole mast to bring him to land. But Mule's knowledge came to our aid. He told one of his slaves to row to land and bring a pot of earth. When the slave returned, Mule spoke some magic words and sprinkled the earth on the dead man's head. Immediately his eyes opened. He took a deep breath and the wound of the nail in his forehead began to bleed. We drew the nail gently out, and he at once fell into the arms of one of the slaves. "'Who has done this for me?' he asked, seeming to have recovered a little. Mule pointed to me. I came forward. "'Many thanks to you, unknown stranger,' said the captain. "'You have saved me from a long-continued torture. For fifteen years my body has been on this ship, sailing over the waters and my spirit was condemned to return each night to my body but now that my head has been touched by earth i can go to rest with my fathers i begged him to tell us the cause of all this and he spoke as follows fifteen years ago i was a powerful and highly esteemed man and lived in algier the desire for gain led me to fit out a ship and become a pirate I had been engaged in this pursuit for quite a while, when, once, among my other plunder, I took a dervish on board, very much against his will. I and my companions were rough men, and we did not regard the holy office of the man. On the contrary, I made jest of him. One day he, in righteous anger, reproved me for my sinful way of living. That night, after I had been drinking very freely with my first mate, my anger mounted higher and higher within me at the recollection of what the dervish had said to me. I would never have allowed even a sultan to speak so to me. My anger increasing, I rushed up to the deck and thrust my dagger into the dervish's heart. As he was dying, he wished that I and my crew should not be able to die or live until our heads were laid on the earth. Then he died. We threw his body into the sea and laughed at his curse. But that same night his wish was fulfilled. Part of my crew revolted against me. A most furious struggle followed until all on my side were killed and I was nailed to the mast. But all the mutineers also died of their wounds and soon my ship was naught but a huge grave. My eyes were set, my breathing stopped, 
and I thought I was dying, but it was only a kind of torpid state into which I had fallen. The next night, at the same hour in which we had thrown the dervish into the sea, I and all my companions awoke from the stupor. Life returned to us, but we could do and say nothing except what had been said and done the night before. Thus we have sailed for fifteen years, not able to live, not able to die. For how could we reach the land? With frantic pleasure we always sailed in the storms, with full sails, because we hoped at last the ship would be dashed to pieces on a rock, and that we could then lay down our weary heads and rest at the bottom of the sea. Our efforts did not succeed, but now I will die. Yet once more I thank you, my unknown rescuer, and if riches can repay you, receive my ship and cargo as a token of my gratitude. When the captain had thus spoken, he bowed his head and expired. His body, like those of his companions, instantly crumbled into dust. We gathered up the dust, put it in a little chest, and buried it on land. I employed some workmen from the city who put my ship in good repair. After I had exchanged the goods which I found on board with the merchants of the city to my great advantage, I hired sailors, paid my friend Muley handsomely, and shipped for my native land. I took, however, a roundabout course, and stopped at many islands and seaports, and brought my goods to market. The prophet blessed and prospered my enterprise. In nine months I reached Balsora. I was now twice as rich as the dead captain had made me. My fellow-townsmen were astonished at my riches and good fortune. They would believe nothing else but that I had found the diamond valley of the celebrated traveller Sinbad. I left them in their belief. From that time on, all the young people of Balsora, before they were eighteen years old, wanted to go out into the world, like me, to make their fortunes. I now live in peace and happiness. Every five years I make a journey to Mecca, to offer my thanks and praise to Allah in that holy place, for the great blessings he has been pleased to bestow upon me, and to pray for the captain and his crew, asking Allah that he will take them to his paradise. The next day and night the caravan travelled on without a stop. When, however, they again made a halt, Selim, the stranger, went up to Muley, the youngest of the merchants, and said, you are by far the youngest of us, and besides are always bright and merry. No doubt you know some droll story or adventure. Bring it out, that it may make us forget the heat of the day. Well, I might relate something that would amuse you, replied Muley. Yet modesty becomes youth in all things. Therefore, my older travelling companions must have precedence. Zaliokos is always so grave and reserved. Shall he not tell us, first, what makes him so serious? Perhaps his anxiety or trouble, if he has any, might be lessened, if he would impart it to us, for we would gladly help our brother. Zaleokos was a Greek merchant. He was a man of middle age, handsome and strong, but very grave. Although he was not a Mussulman, yet he was beloved by all his travelling companions. He had won their esteem and trust, by his refined and open manners. He had but one hand. Some of the merchants were of the opinion that it was this misfortune that made him so grave and reserved. To Muley's suggestion, Zaleokos replied, I am much honored by your expressions of sympathy. No one of you can lessen my trouble, although you have the best of intentions. Yet, as Muley seems to reproach me for my gravity, 
I will tell you something which will justify me in your eyes if I am more serious than others. You see that I have lost my left hand. I was not always so. I lost that missing member on the most terrible day of my life. If it was by any fault of mine, or if since that painful day I do wrong in seeming grave, you shall judge when you have heard the story of the severed hand. End of section 5